All right. Good morning, everyone. We're surprisingly chip, like, real chippery. Everyone lost an hour of sleep. Wasn't so chippery at the 9 a.m. service. Um, an hour means a lot. You know, I got three kids under five, uh, six and under, so an hour is a big deal when you lose that. Changes your perspective, that sleep, you know? Because it's like, you know, yesterday, you know, you're going on a good sleep, and it's like, man, this is ridiculous. Everyone's panicking over this stuff. I mean, the flu season comes every year. It's just, hey, let's be cautious. Let's make a big deal about it. You lose an hour of sleep and it's, hey, you know, we're all going to (laughs) die. Every last one of us, it's coming. Have you not read the book of Revelation? This is how it goes down. We are in the last Last week of our book of our series going through the book of Ephesians. So this is Ephesians chapter six, the very end. And before we get started, I want to introduce you to an idea that some of you may be familiar with, but for the most part, uh, it's a little bit unknown. It's called Christian atheism. And Christian atheism, it's been around for a long time, but it really kind of picked up some steam about 50 years ago and then kind of died down. But it's, it's getting a little bit of momentum, especially in the last three years in kind of American culture. And Christian atheism is this. It's the belief that one ought to reject all the supernatural elements in the Bible so, you know, we, we don't buy into angels, demons, certainly not a Satan figure. Uh, we're not praying for miracles. In fact, we may not even pray. So we're going to get rid of all the supernatural elements. But we still think the teachings, particularly the ethical and moral teachings of Jesus, are good for people and good for humanity. So it's this idea that we can throw out all the spiritual, supernatural elements of the Bible, but keep the teachings, specifically the ethical teachings of Jesus. It comes in different forms and different varieties. One version of it was a prominent theologian several decades ago who said that um, Jesus was actually God and God came to earth in Jesus. But when Jesus died on the cross, God actually died and there wasn't a resurrection. And in that, God sort of ceased to be and his presence kind of was unleashed upon all of creation. But for all intents and purposes, God is dead. There's no miracles, there's no Satan, there's no angels, there's no demons, there's no supernatural realm, but we still should follow the teachings and example of Jesus. So again, many different forms of this, but the key idea is keep the teachings of Jesus and get rid of the rest. Now, because you're all at church today, most of us would say, well, that's nonsense. Like, How can you keep the teachings of Jesus and just throw out all the other elements of the Bible? That sounds nonsensical. But what I would submit to you today is that many of us, most of the time, live like Christian atheists. We may cognitively, you know, affirm traditional Christianity with all the supernatural elements, but on a practical day-to-day basis, we live like Christian atheists in that we do not take serious the supernatural realities, the spiritual realities that the Christians that the Bible talks about. See, we are all brought up in materialism. And by materialism, I mean the belief that the physical world is all that exists. So what matters is things that your five senses can pick up, which you can touch, taste, see, which you can measure, which you can put in a test tube or beaker. So the physical world is what we believe in. And even if you're a Christian today, you've been brought up in the modern Western world, and since birth, you've been saturated in materialism. 
So much so that even if you're kind of a Christian, you believe in spiritual realities, but when you think about them, you often think about them like off in heaven. Like, yeah, sure, there's angels and they're near God in heaven, but you don't see our world overlaid with the spiritual. And so, C.S. Lewis says that people, for the most part, historically, will drift to two extremes, one of becoming a materialist and the other becoming a magician. And what he means by that is people in the modern Western world, our culture, will gravitate to being materialist. All we believe in is the physical. There's no supernatural, there's no spiritual, it doesn't exist. And if it does exist, it takes place in some far off dimension that you can visit when you die. On the opposite extreme, and this is more particular for people who have brought up an Eastern religion, an Eastern culture, you become a magician, where you, you believe in the spiritual world so much that you see spiritual realities with everything. So it's like the table gives you a bad vibe, and you know, you're casting demons out of the table. And if you've been brought up in a culture where every tree has a spirit behind it, you can see how you might drift into that direction. But Lewis would say, all of humanity goes to one of those extremes. We drift towards materialism or drift to becoming magicians. And you have to recognize that as Christians living in the modern world, we are all going to drift to materialism and become materialists because that's the culture we've been saturated in. And every so often, a modern person might sort of get the inclination that the world is a little bit different than, than we think. It's a little bit stranger, it's a little bit weirder. But there's mechanisms that kick in that reinforce our materialism. An example of this is illustrated by C.S. Lewis in the book, The Screwtape Letters. Incredible book, I encourage everyone to read it. The way it's structured is there's a, like, it's a fictional story of there's this top-ranking demon and he's training a younger demon. And he's giving tips, every chapter, it's like a page and a half. Hey, little demon, this is what you ought to do. This is how the world thinks, this is how it operates. Here's your strategy. And on one of those chapters, the high-ranking demon, the senior devil, screw tape, tells the junior devil, Wormwood, this. <clears throat> the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in the mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method for confusing them, he cannot believe in you. So if the second a modern person starts to think there might be more going on in the world than just the physical world, pop it in their mind of a little, little demon with red tights and a pitchfork. And then of course we go, well, I don't believe in that. So you throw the whole thing out. But what Paul in the book of Ephesians is going to articulate is not that there's little red pitchfork, red tight demons running around, but there are powers, rulers, and authorities at work in the spiritual realm. And they have a direct influence, a significant influence on the physical world we occupy. Paul concludes his letter with giving us some directions on how we ought to interact with that spiritual reality. And this is a famous passage, it's about the armor of God. And this is how he concludes his letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. A couple introductory notes. First, this phrase, be strong in the Lord. The language Paul was originally writing in was Greek. It's Koine Greek. And there's something that the verb be strong is doing. And it's, it's technically called the passive verb. And what's occurring is this. Paul is not telling them, you be strong. Like start training, start lifting weights, muscle up your own strength and stand firm. It's, it's a passive verb in that you are supposed to receive it. In other words, a better translation of this verb would be be strengthened. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It is not your strength. It is not you deadlifting your way into spiritual realities. It is God giving you strength in his might to be able to stand in the spiritual realm. So you be strengthened in the Lord. And then he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not other humans. It's not physical things. The missiles, the bombs, they're not the problem. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers that are working in this present darkness. Now, question for you all. What do you see? Some trees, right? Some trees getting moved by the wind. What do you see here? A tree getting moved by the wind. How about here? A tree getting moved by the wind. Trees are moved by the wind. It is not the wind that is moved by the trees. The trees don't move the wind. Wind moves the trees. One of my professors says this. Dr. Len Sweet says, the greatest mistake of the church today is the belief that it's the trees that move the wind. The notion that the most powerful forces in the world are physical, material, tangible, visible forces. It's not the trees that move the wind. It's the wind that moves the trees. See, modern Western people believe the most powerful forces in the world are physical, material, material, tangible, things you could touch, taste, and see. But the scriptures will tell you there are other forces at work. And it's the wind that moves the trees. And because of this, Paul says, there are powers at work. Now again, the temptation here is go, oh, he's talking about demons. And if he's talking about demons, those are the, the you know, the little, Satan's little henchmen. There's the, those two little creatures in Nacho Libre. You know what I'm talking about? They're called like the, the devil's henchmen or something like that. And they run around like bite you at your ankles and stuff. It's like, yeah, those little demons, right? You, the, the Bible doesn't speak like that. It speaks in terms of very powerful supernatural beings. And Paul calls them powers, rulers, and authorities. And there appears to be some hierarchical structure, but Paul doesn't seem concerned to tell us how that works. He's not like, okay, know that the rulers are the captains, the authorities are the generals, and the top dog are the cosmic powers. And there's three of them. One's located in North America. He doesn't talk like that. But he lets you know that there are very powerful forces, beings in the spiritual realm, 
that are at war with God and his people. And so you are not intended to picture a little demon with red tights running around with a pitchfork. You are supposed to picture cosmic powers at work in the world. And for those of you who are kind of like into conspiracy theories, ain't nothing more conspiracy theory than this. Because whoever you think is running the show behind the scenes, whoever you think is like, you know, because conspiracy theories is like, there's always some secret person that's, that's moving the puppets on the world stage. It's like, no, no, no. You gotta understand how deep this goes. Behind the curtain and the veil of the physical world, there exist beings that are pulling the strings. And Paul says, you better be aware of this. And this is what you ought to do in light of it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. I stopped right there because I like this. It's, there's, there's a repetition here. There's a rhythm. And Paul has already mentioned stand, but in just this short, short section, he does it three times again. Listen to it. It's, Better take up the whole armor of God so that you be, be, may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Do you feel that? Stand, stand, stand. Stand up. Prepare yourself. There's a reality here. And when you've done all to stand, therefore stand firm. And how do we do that? With the armor of God. Now, brief introduction to the armor of God. Oftentimes, there's a temptation to map all the pieces of the armor of God upon a Roman soldier. And it typically looks something like this. You say, Paul talks about a shield, a breastplate, a helmet, some, some sandals or some boots, and he's talking about them, and he's having them correspond to different pieces of uh, a Roman soldier's armor. Um, and certainly, Paul's in the first century, Rome is in charge, and so people might have been thinking of a Roman soldier for an image as Paul talks about the armor of God, but Paul is a Jewish thinker. He's saturated in the Old Testament, and 95% of the time when Paul is using image and metaphor, he's grounded in the Old Testament. And so it's a mistake to ground our imagery of the armor of God in a Roman soldier's outfit. It's more accurate to ground it in the images of the Old Testament, because Paul has specific verses in mind that he's alluding to. And the rest of this chapter is soaked in the book of Isaiah. The images, the metaphors, it's like Paul has the scroll of Isaiah opened as he's writing Ephesians. So I'll show you where Paul gets his armor of God stuff from. In Isaiah 59, the prophet says, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in the gloom. In other words, evil and darkness overtake the land. The people are looking for righteousness for something, but it's not there, only darkness. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. There was no justice. God looks down. Pure evil, no justice, and it displeases God. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. God looks down and he looks for a human. 
Who's going to do something about this? No one. He finds no one, just darkness. Line three, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God looks down, he can't find anybody, so he says, I'm going to come do it myself. And this is how it's described. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And if you've been at a church for the church a long time, you know that that is the direct quote for the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, which we'll get to in a moment. So in Isaiah, what's occurring? Evil and darkness, no one fights the good fight. God himself comes and he wears the breastplate of righteousness and puts on the helmet of salvation and then clothes himself with garments of vengeance. He's going to battle. Paul in Ephesians 6, in light of the spiritual reality, says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So first, there's a breastplate of righteousness again. But who wore it in Isaiah? God did. In Ephesians, Paul says, no, no, now you put on the breastplate of righteousness. And the question is, is in what sense can a Christian put on the breastplate of righteousness? Because, you know, if you read throughout scripture, especially if you read in the book of Isaiah, is anyone righteous? No, not one. But the mystery of the gospel, according to Paul, is that by faith, you receive a righteousness that is not your own. God counts you or credits your account as righteous in the present. So what used to be armor for God the breastplate of righteousness, is now guarding your chest as well. Secondly, it says, fasten on the belt of truth. Literally, this is a lert up, uh, like gird up your loins with truth. It doesn't even say the word belt. It's like truth. And there's a temptation here also with kind of the Roman armor where, where you say, okay, why does the belt, why is it the belt that's truth? Could, why, why couldn't the, the helmet be truth? And the, the, why could it have been the belt of salvation? And so then oftentimes you're tempted to, to say things like, oh, it has to be the belt of truth because truth is what holds it all together. And it has to be the helmet of salvation because salvation is the thing that guards your mind. And there's a temptation to go down that trail. And that's not how this works. What Paul is doing is something a little bit more simple than that. <clears throat> He's taking the new life of the Christian and so I already talked about this, Ephesians 4.24, the new Christian ought to look a certain way and he ought to walk in a certain manner. And the new Christian, the new identity is one of righteousness and faithfulness. It's one of peace. It's one of salvation. And so Paul takes the attributes of the new life of the new Christian and maps them onto these armor pieces. But you can kind of get led down a road you don't want to go down if you try and start figuring out, well, why, does, why is it truth that you have to? It's, 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 it doesn't work that way. And we know this because in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul calls the breastplate the breastplate of love and faith. So it's not like the breastplate has to be righteousness. That's not what, what is going on here. The third armor he gives in this section is the shoes. Verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
And oftentimes, again, you might have heard something like this where it's, you know, in in the Roman Empire, the sandals that the Roman soldiers wore were like sandal boots and they had cleats on them because Paul's telling you to stand firm and so the Roman soldier would dig his cleats into the ground and be ready for battle. Paul has Jewish images in his mind. So when you hear about sandals or boots or feet bringing gospel or good news, does your mind go anywhere? Especially if you've been Christian a long time, you've been reading the Bible a long time, where does it go? It goes like everything in Ephesians 6 to Isaiah. Isaiah speaks about the feet that bring good news. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel, who publishes peace, Shalom, who brings good news, gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In Isaiah, the prophet spoke of a day where God himself would be king. And when that happens, good news, gospel would go out into the whole world. So what is Paul doing here? He's saying that's what's occurring. As shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this is interesting because if you were to go to battle, would one of your weapons or garment be peace? No. Like, right? I want to bring the best weapons. I'm not going to go try to fight. I'm not going to go pick a fight and be like, my feet are peace. I mean you no harm. I'm going to be like, as soon as this guy looks away, I'm punching him. You know, you want to attack. Get the first move in. For the Christian, part of his weapon, which is warfare, is peace. The way the Christian fights is not through earthly or militaristic weapons. It's peace. Christians bring peace. He goes on. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So three more pieces of armor. First, the shield of faith. Now, in the modern world, faith, the word faith in English can, can be tricky because we say things that make faith seem to mean believing in things that you shouldn't or believing in things that um, all the odds are against. Like, oh, the Lakers are finally good. I had faith that that decade would pass. And you know, my, now I had faith that the impossible would happen. They're not bad, okay? It's like, oh, I'm a, I had faith in my team. Or you can say, like, against all odds, the person had faith. As if something you believe in that you shouldn't believe in, but you keep on believing, that's faith. That's a bad definition. The word pistis for Paul, faith, has, has, it's, it's a large word with many meanings. It means believing, it means faith, it means trust, and it also means loyalty. For instance, when you get married to someone and you say, I am going to be faithful to you. You are not saying, I'm going, that means I believe in you. Like, I believe you're there, wife. I have faith. I believe in things. No, no, you're saying, I'm pledging my faithfulness. There's a sense of loyalty in that. And in the biblical word for faith, all of those meanings are there. Believing, trusting, and committing to being faithful. So in battle, the Christian has a shield. And that shield is trusting and having faith. 
and also a loyalty to the king. The good soldier on the battlefield is a loyal soldier. He's loyal. And he's those things so that he can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And the evil darts is an, uh, is a, is an image of flaming arrows, which is used in ancient combat, just absolutely devastating. Uh, they mastered these techniques on the battlefield. It wasn't like they, they got an arrow and lit the tip on fire and you know, it's like, ooh, look, if there's lights in the sky. Like, first off, when you shot an arrow, it was very hard to not put the fire out, so they had to master how you did these things. And the more they got better at it, they were able to keep these arrows on fire, and then when they hit, the arrows can explode and put some type of flammable material that you couldn't just throw water on to put out. These are deadly, absolutely deadly in ancient combat. Paul says the flaming darts come from the evil one. Now question, who's the evil one? It's a little bit of a trick question. You've had 2,000 years of Christian history to tell you that the evil one is Satan or the devil. But 2,000 years ago, in Ephesus, who was the evil one? So in Ephesus, there's a God that's worshiped. Who's the chief God, goddess of Ephesus? Artemis. Majority of the converts in Ephesus would have been former worshipers of Artemis. They were in a covenant relationship with this goddess. And so for them, one of the first things that comes to their mind when they think about an evil one is Artemis. Now, how do we know this? Because Artemis is always depicted with her weapon of choice. Or she's not always depicted with her weapon of choice, but when Artemis is depicted with her weapon of choice... It's the bow and arrow. She's the one that shoots the fl- flaming arrows. Now, so the question is, is Paul talking about Artemis or is he talking about Satan? This is, this is difficult for modern people to get our minds around because we don't think in these categories. But if you ask Paul the apostle, okay, who's the evil one in Ephesus? Is it Artemis or Satan? Paul might say, yes. And then he might go on and say, no, you gotta understand some things. Artemis isn't real. Artemis doesn't exist. We know that all the gods and goddesses of the Roman pantheon aren't real. They're not real. So it's not that big of a deal when someone sacrifices to an idol because the idol isn't real. But you better watch out because when you sacrifice to an idol, you're sacrificing to something real. Does that sound confusing? I just did that on purpose because that's how Paul talks about it. He's like, oh man, Artemis isn't real. But don't you know that when you sacrifice to those idols, you are sacrificing to spiritual beings? I'm like, what? See, in the Old and New Testament, it becomes abundantly clear that false religions and false gods are not real. However, there are spiritual realities and beings behind the philosophies and ideology and theologies that animate those religious systems. I'll give you an example. So, was there a God over Nazism? No, there's no, it's just an ideology. If you become a not, if you buy into Nazi ideology, it's, it's just an ideology. There's no God behind it. 
And Paul would say, yes, there's no God behind Nazi ideology. But he would also say, don't you know that when you participate in Nazi ideology, you are participating in the doctrine of demons? Because there are spiritual realities and beings that animate, that give power to the false teachings of this world. So, are the flaming darts from Artemis? No. But are they from something demonic that lies behind Artemis? Paul would say yes. And as modern people, we've been trained not to think like this. But you better believe that whole cultures become blinded to what's actually taking place behind the scenes. And so Paul says, you better put on the shield of faith and you better be a loyal soldier because there's things you don't understand about the world. Then he says, take the helmet of salvation. Remember that? That was Isaiah. The helmet of salvation. You put that on. You know who you are and who you belong to. That'll make you live differently. If you know who you are and who you belong to and where you're going, you'll live this life differently. Lastly, he says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's the only weapon in the armor, is the sword. And what's the weapon supposed to do? It's supposed to preach the word of God, the gospel and the written word of Jesus. When Jesus is tempted by Satan in in the desert, what does he do? He quotes Bible verses back to, to Satan. So you have these attributes that you're supposed to put on Remember Ephesians 4, put on the new clothing. Now Paul's saying, put on the armor. Righteousness, peace, faith, fullness. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and this is how you engage in these realities. He closes the book by saying, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I I underline I am an ambassador in chains because one of the things about the ancient world and the modern world is if an ambassador goes to a nation, he's supposed to be treated a certain way. Even if you're not friends with the ambassador's nation, you treat the ambassador peacefully, you you may say, hey, we're gonna go to war with you, but you still send the ambassador back. What Paul is doing is he's saying, man, Do you understand the evil kingdom you're up against? I'm an ambassador of God's kingdom. And even though I am an ambassador of God's kingdom, I find myself in chains. And he would have been literally chained to a Roman guard. And what Paul is saying, I may be chained to a Roman guard, but that Roman God who has flogged me is not my enemy. He's not my enemy. I do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I wrestle against things behind that. The Roman guard is not my enemy. Lastly, he says, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love 
corruptible. The book of Ephesians, concluding with teaching you how to dress for the spiritual war, for the spiritual battle. Now, a few things coming out of this. First, and we just touched on this. First and foremost, incredibly important for today. Human beings are not the enemy. Human beings are not the enemy. See, we can get tricked into believing this and we get all flustered and angry and we think this group or this people, they're the real enemy and we need to take, take them out. The Christian doesn't fight like that. He doesn't think like that. The Christian understands that human beings are like prisoners of war. They, they've been blinded or they're like soldiers who believe the propaganda of the state and they're serving the enemy or maybe they're a POW of the enemy, a prisoner of the enemy. But the Christian doesn't look at other human beings, even when they're mistreating you, as the enemy. Why? Because the Christian knows that just up until like five minutes ago, you were on that side. And the only reason why you're not still on the side of the powers and authorities and cosmic powers, the only reason why you're not over there is because God gave you grace. You didn't wake yourself up. You didn't dig yourself out of the coffin. You didn't dig yourself out of the grave. You didn't muscle up and break through and climb out. Jesus came, he got a shovel, dug down deep, broke your coffin, brought you up, and gave you life. That's why you're not on team devil. It's because God gave you grace, and he brought you to life. So as a Christian, you don't get to look down upon any other human beings. You don't get to say, that person is the enemy. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but as Christians, we wrestle against the rulers, the powers, and the authorities who rule this present darkness. And that's a word our culture and the church needs to hear. You don't, you don't have enemies that are other human beings. There are people just like you who were just like you up until like five minutes ago when God gave you grace. And that makes every interaction you have differently. Every interaction is different. And, you know, for us, honestly, that's easy. It's pretty easy. Because the worst an enemy can do for us, like do to us, is like talk bad about us online. Or maybe in the workplace, get you in trouble, get you fired at worst. For Paul, it can get you killed. For the Christians, it might land you on a cross. Paul is saying this chained to a Roman guard. Roman guards have literally crucified some of Paul's friends. Roman guards have burnt his friends alive. And he says, they're not the enemy. I don't wrestle against them. I wrestle against the unseen. Second, we have to remember that those who appear to be enemies are not only enemies, or they're, they're not just not enemies, but they're, like, they're captured, and the people who have captured them hate them just as much as they hate us. So C.S. Lewis, in the Hideous Strength part of his Space Trilogy, he says this, in fighting those who serve devils, one always has this on one side. Their masters hate them as much as they hate us. all hate that fuels the enemy. 
Now the question arises, and I'm not going to spin long here because the Bible doesn't spin long here. How does the demonic interfere? How do they tempt us? Like, you ever wondered how that works? Like, could a demon do this or could he do that? And I'm here to say the Bible isn't really concerned with that question. The Bible's more concerned that you're being faithful, that you're in prayer, that you're reading God's word, and it's like by doing all these things, you're gonna be okay. But briefly, there's hints at what the enemy can do. And even when there's these hints, they're not even mapped out. They're not even fully explained. They're just said in passing. So for instance, in Matthew 4, Jesus is presented the kingdoms of the world by Satan. And it's like, well, how do you picture the kingdoms of the world? Well, obviously it wasn't like Satan took Jesus up really high and then had him go around the globe and say, look at all the kingdoms of this world. There's an image that's there. And so does that mean the demonic can put an image in your head? I don't know, but in Matthew 4, there might be a hint of it, an injecting of an image into our minds or something enticing to be sinful. Ephesians 4.27, it seems to appear that they could exploit a sinful tendency such as anger. Don't let anger go down. Uh, Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You give room for the devil. How does that work? It doesn't say. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Afflicting us with a physical illness or condition, is that possible? I don't have it all mapped out, but I do know that Paul in this passage says that he was given a thorn in his flesh, which was a messenger of Satan to like torment him. Was that a physical sick? I don't know if it was physical. Was it like headaches? Was it some type of depression? I don't know but there appears to be something in 2 Corinthians that's possible. In Acts 5.3, people are enticed to lie. And then this last one, which we're gonna close on, this is the most, what I think is the most important and overlooked element. Inspiring false doctrine and bad theology. We often think of the little demon in red tights and he's got a little pitchfork and you know, he's going, man, I'm gonna get, get Homer to be frustrated today, be angry. And it's like, sure, maybe there is some personal temptation that the scriptures talk about. But the Bible talks more about the ideologies, the philosophies, the theologies, the arguments that the demonic makes to deceive not just individuals, but the nations. And that makes sense, right? Like if you're trying to wage war on God's people, you're not going to try to get Drew Dowler to be cranky this morning. Far too easy of a task. He works with me. You're going to go, how can I deceive a whole culture or a nation? Go back to Nazi ideology. It's the doctrine of demons. And you invent an ideology that sounds good, that all of a sudden you get whole people groups to believe. And now all of a sudden you don't have one person deceived, you have the nation, a culture. And then what's even crazier is you don't have people not only accepting evil, you have people cheering evil. And so you have to develop your knowledge of the word of God to guard against all the stuff that's going on. And see, this stuff appears in different cultures in different ways. So this culture may be demonically attacked in this area. There may be a false teaching in this culture. There may be a false teaching in this culture. But every culture, there's some type of strategy at work. So, like in our culture, I'll give you an example. Some of you might have seen this. Now, before I get into this, no, I won't even say that. 
there's been viral video circulating. There's been several of these, several of them, in which uh, it takes some, some of them take place in a library, some of them take place like in a restaurant. The one I'll talk about took place in a restaurant, and the other one took place in a library. The one in the restaurant was a picture of a video of a four, five, six-year-old girl, and everyone around is clapping and cheering as a man who is dressed in drag dances before her in a sexualized manner. Okay, now hear me on this. First off, I'm conservative theologically, but I'm not even talking about this right now. I'm just talking about sexualizing children. Not talking about sexual identity, any of this stuff. I'm just talking about the idea that you are going to dance in a sexual manner for a child. The other one was in a library where a person in drag taught children how to twerk. And if you don't know what twerking is, God bless you. But it's something that's sexualized. Now you may be saying, man, that's so demonic. I mean, we have people trying to sexualize children. You say that's so demonic. There's always going to be anomalies in every culture where someone goes, man, I think that's a good idea and do something inappropriate. You know that, right? Like, there's always gonna be people that do stuff like that. I don't think that, that needed much demonic help. I'll tell you how the, the kingdom of Satan works. It's not to get someone to, to, to twerk in front of a child. It's to have that video go viral and not only have a room of people, but the nation clapping and applauding if this is some virtuous, brave thing to teach children. Let's all applaud evil as if it's good. People do evil stuff all the time, but if you can convince a whole nation to applaud evil, that's how the rulers, powers, and authorities work. And do you not see this stuff taking place in our culture on many different fronts? Where you're just going, how could people, like, how could, how could you be okay with this? There's current discussion right now that if, and again, Cards on the table, again, I'm pro-life, big time pro-life, okay? You got a chair, and some of, some of you here, you're not, okay? Does, doesn't matter. We're having a discussion in this country that if a child survives an abortion and it's alive on a table, whether you should provide that person with medical attention or not, that's the discussion we're having right now. Now, yes, it's on the fringes, but guess what? Everything that was on the fringes 10 years ago ain't on the fringes anymore. And what do you do? You call it brave and virtuous and good. It's evil, and we're going to applaud it. See, I need you to picture like a city with a city wall. And uh, let's say the city wall is your Christian theology and teaching, okay? And the city wall protects the city. And let's say the city wall, your Christian theology is good in all these places, but the enemy is attacking one particular area, right? It's attacking right here. This is where the enemy is attacking. What you need to understand is that even if you have good theology and you got your guard up in all these areas, the battle will be fought and won precisely where the battle is occurring. If the wall falls, falls there, everything comes in. 
The enemy comes in and destroys the inside. So it's precisely where the battle is most hot, where the soldier of Christ has to be most loyal and faithful. Because you could say, oh, I'm faithful on this side. Man, there's no fight going on there. Like, I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity and I stand firm by it. No one's, on a daily basis, no one is getting tempting you to not believe the doctrine of the Trinity. But where are the hot spots of our culture? And where is the church just kind of biting quiet? It's there that matters. Martin Luther says this. He was fighting different battles in his time. There were doctrinal issues over justification by faith. Different, different time hundreds of years ago, but the principle still stands. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point where the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldiers proved. To be steady on the battlefield except in that area is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So what do you do? You stand firm. And how do you stand firm as a Christian? It's through prayer. The entire armor of God is built on prayer. You pray that God would strengthen you. You receive strength. And what does that look like? It looks like a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, shoes that bring not violence, but peace. And your weapon is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And through all of those and through prayer, you can stand firm and fight the good fight. And you better be putting that stuff on and you better be praying because you will not be faithful on the front lines if you're not. And lastly, as we close, remember, people are not the enemy. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You don't use earthly weapons to fight a spiritual battle. So remember, how did God come in the book of Isaiah? God comes down and he sees the evil. No one's gonna take it out. I'm gonna put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm gonna put on the helmet of salvation. I'm gonna put the garments of vengeance on and I'm gonna go take this evil out. And sometimes God does that. He shows up as the divine warrior to eliminate evil. But in order to save human beings, he didn't show up as the divine warrior to kill his enemies because then we would all be dead. So what weapons did he bring to the fight of all fights? He didn't. He takes off the breastplate of righteousness. He takes off the helmet of salvation. He takes off his shoes. He tells Peter, put down your sword. He takes off his robe and is nailed crucified to a Roman cross. Because if you are gonna win the spiritual battle, that can't be fought with earthly weapons. And so the Son of God comes not with fire and lightning and thunder, he comes as the suffering servant of Isaiah to die on our behalf. And so Christians, do you know your weapons? Do you know how you ought to fight? Do you know who your enemy is? Are you suiting up? Are you on the front lines where it matters? As we close, I'd just like us to pray and reflect on this. Namely, am I living 
like a materialist? Do I live like a materialist? And maybe some of you, your temptation is to live like the magician. But the Christian lives like a Christian and we fight like Christ fights. And we love our enemies because they're in bondage. Let's stand as we pray. Lord, we look to your example and the work of your son on the cross. Lord, we pray that we would be filled with strength from on high, that you would clothe every Christian in this room with your armor, that you would give us your breastplate of righteousness, that you've given us salvation, that you've given us a shield of loyalty and faith. I pray that we would walk with peace, that we would gird up with truth, and that we would be people of the word of God, and that our only weapon would be your words and not our own, the truth of the gospel and of the Bible. So Lord, we thank you for this. Help us to live wisely in an evil world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.